Three, two, and one. Welcome to the Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with uh, Peter Evers, and we're going to introduce Peter in just a moment and our guest for today's show. We are really excited to have our Mental Health Matters event on Wednesday. Tomorrow's we'll do the podcast here on Tuesday, and this is going to be a discussion about individuals who have lived experience dealing with mental health, dealing with mental illness, and not just a discussion of what their lives have been like, but also a upshot as to some of the areas that we can do better as an organization and as a community in addressing the issues surrounding uh, mental illness. And certainly, Peter, we've had uh, tremendous steps made over the last five or so years in recognizing mental illness and how it should be on a par with uh, physical uh, illness, but uh, there is a lot more to be done. And so in that context, Peter, welcome to the show, and uh, I'll let you introduce uh, our guest, uh, Bob Sosi, the voice of the Patriots. Well, thank you very much, Chris, and uh, I'm really looking forward to um, to the discussion tomorrow night. And um, I think it is really unusual um, to have a panelist with people who are working in the field of mental health day, day to day and people with lived experience. And that's what we're going to be doing tomorrow, really giving over to the people that matter a uh, platform to discuss um, uh, mental wellness. And, you know, I, I noticed the other day that our national organization, the nationalist, the, uh, uh, the behavioral health uh, uh, organization have changed their name to the, you know, the Society for Behavioral Wellness. And I think that's a movement in the right direction where we're getting away from describing disease, but yes, this is a disease, but we're incorporating it into our life, um, you know, the idea that our mental illness doesn't define us is, I think, a lot what we're going to hear about uh, tomorrow and true stories of recovery and resilience. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and we're really uh, privileged to have Bob Sosi to uh, moderate the conversation, um, you know, uh, the voice of the Patriots for the last nine years. Uh, and um, through all the ups and ups, is it Bob nowadays with the, with the Patriots? Although <laughs> although I know the last two years haven't been so uh, so successful for them, but uh, that must have been quite a ride as well. And um, welcome uh, to the show. I know we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about tomorrow uh, and how that's going to go, and some of the folks that are going to be participating. So again, thank you so much for joining us, Bob, and welcome to the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you, Peter. And I've been fortunate because most of my experiences have definitely been ups with the Patriots. Relatively few downs compared to everyone else in the National Football League, but more so, of course, the last couple of years for the Patriots and their fans. Nonetheless, I think that uh, there's a lot to be excited about with this year's particular team and looking forward to broadcasting the 2021 season. But first and foremost, looking forward to tomorrow night. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's going to be great. And, you know, I was just thinking about the Patriots and how much uh, they're embedded in our community and um, and how much the ownership um, are uh, a face. And I'm going to I'm going to go English on you in a moment, but uh, for a second. But, you know, yesterday, the um, we had the FA Cup final on Sunday, actually, which is the biggest thing in England in soccer. And uh, the owners uh, very much like the, uh, the crafts in a way. And when they won the cup, Leicester City won the cup. The owners came on the on the field and they were being embraced by everyone and very much the same thing a group of people who really want to give back to their communities getting involved um, in uh, all sorts of charitable um, initiatives and of course i think the one everybody remembers is the bringing of the face masks um, from china 
what, a year and three months ago now. And uh, again, a huge thank you because I know that many people are the beneficiary of, uh, of that largesse. Yeah, Peter, and you know, it, it's it's continued the effort that the Patriots have made during the pandemic to help people on many different fronts. You noted the team utilizing its plane and resources to fly to China at the request of Governor Baker and supply a million masks, not only to area hospitals and first responders, frontline workers, but also they sent a shipment to New York. They have continued to serve meals to military families, veterans and their families and many others in need throughout the last year plus. They opened Gillette Stadium, of course, as a vaccination site and have, uh, to my knowledge, uh, exceeded more than a half million vaccinations there. At the same time now, they're trying to entice people to go get vaccinated at the smaller clinics in the area. They'll have their six Super Bowl trophies, the Lombardi trophies, for example, on display at various vaccination sites this week where people can go get their shot, have their photo taken with the Lombardi Trophy. And there, and there are so many countless ways that they give back. The Kraft family has written a lot of large checks, of course. Uh, Josh Kraft in particular, uh, the brother of President Jonathan Kraft, son of Robert Kraft, his, his life has been spent, career has been spent in, in philanthropy with the Boys and Girls Clubs and now overseeing the Patriots Foundation. And it all emanates from his mother and Robert's wife, Myra Kraft, her spirit of volunteerism and giving back. It, it was a priority. When Robert Kraft bought the Patriots, she told him, you have to give back. This has to be a, a platform, a way of giving back to people in our communities. Yeah, and I think you know one, one of the things is, is that generosity uh, for many, many years with, uh, with people that give um, wouldn't involve behavioral health, mental health issues, wouldn't involve substance use disorder issues, because many of those diseases and illness were viewed as a life, lifestyle choice, which, of course, we know now is utterly absurd because, you know, it is unusual for the human being to go through the lifestyle life uh, span without getting having some sort of emotional disruption. But when when charitable organizations, uh, organizations like the Patriots begin to say, wait a minute, the mind, why are we, why are we ne neglecting the mind? Because it is the most complex of organs that we have. And we have to put money into research. We have to put money into treatment. And I believe it's when people tell their stories, their own individuals' stories of recovery. Um, and Chris and I have talked about this a lot, but many famous athletes, many famous people are now beginning to say, yeah, I struggle with that. And yeah, I went to therapy. And all of a sudden, therapy is just becoming something that you use, um, a, you know, a little bit like a medication for chronic um, heart disease or something like that. It is a treatment that works. And we're having those discussions. And we're going to have them uh, tomorrow uh, with our staff and yourself, of course. Along those lines and kind of bring it into, you know, the, the sports field, if you will, sports psychology is a huge part of every organization. And in that environment, it's not just individuals that may have something they want to talk about with anxiety or depression. It's also to optimize the performance of the person and to, for a person to perform at their best, they need to talk things through and to discuss things. And as the we've as there's been a focus in sports on athletes and maximize the performance, the investment in them from a dietary and from a performance standpoint, that's been a big piece, Bob, over the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, Chris and Peter, you know, it's interesting to me because for decades, 
there has been a focus on the mental side of sports, particularly, I think, in golf, uh, more than the other sports early on, the use of psychologists to help golfers concentrate, visualize, overcome potential distractions on the course, maintain their focus and build their confidence. And other sports started to employ some of those same individuals who work with professional golfers to come in and counsel their teams. Baseball uh, for years has had uh, a focus on the mental ABCs of pitching and hitting and the same in the other sports. And when you look at the holistic approach to conditioning, uh, off-season conditioning, you know, strengthening the body, getting your legs, building stamina, understanding the playbook from the mental side, uh, developing the right fortitude and the right mentality to succeed over the long haul of a season. And in, in the case of the NFL, of course, it includes the spring practices and then really begins in earnest in the summer months and throughout the regular season. It, 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 it made sense, and yet it, it, it puzzled me why teams didn't address mental wellness on and off the field in particular. Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen is that some high-profile athletes, Brandon Marshall is one who comes to mind uh, more recently in the NFL, who really was an advocate and, and was out there putting himself out there. And you mentioned Peter telling your story. Well, Brandon Marshall shared his story and his struggles with mental illness. And I think that it, it's helped other players open up. And we've seen it in the NBA in particular, people like Kevin Love, uh, very forthright in terms of his struggles and many others. In the NFL, there are players who've had anxiety, and I hate to use the word disorders, but these are guys who were playing before packed stadiums uh, in, in, in normal years, tens of thousands of people on the grandest stage, uh, including an offensive lineman from the Eagles, a guy that played against the Patriots, of course, a couple of years ago in the Super Bowl, who at one point in, in, in his career, struggled to go out on the field because of his anxieties and with the help of professionals, with the help of counseling. And now every NFL team has someone solely for that purpose in the organization to help these players deal with their off field issues. And, and, it, and it carries over beyond their playing careers to when they try to transition. The NFL for years has had a problem with ex players, uh, struggling to maintain their marriages, struggling to handle their finances. Uh, there was a stat about a decade ago that uh, roughly, I think, 70% of NFL players upon retirement within a few years were either divorced, broke, or both. Amazing. And, I, and, and it makes total sense to mm -hmm. me, again, from the holistic approach to conditioning an athlete. When you re invest so many resources into someone, just from the practical side of it, don't you want that person to be in the best? best state of mind, not only when he's on the field, but off the field, just like in everything else, every ever, every other endeavor in life. I, I think that the more complete person, the per person who's dealing well in and out of the workplace with his or her daily struggles is going to be a, a better professional. So from that standpoint, again, practically speaking, it makes sense. And of course, there are so many other effects personally as well. Yeah, Peter, on on that, I think it's a really important point because you know, we've talked about our healthcare system and how we're not a system that treats wellness. We re react to um, illness. We react to pain. And we have a, a managed care type of environment where it is, uh, you know, basically when something bad happens, you go to the doctor. And it seems like that's the same in regards to uh, mental health care, where it's not thought of as being, oh, in order to achieve my optimal best, this is what I need to do, more holistic approach. It is, 
if I am feeling a certain way, this is the time when I need to see a clinician. Now, once you get into a, an environment where you perhaps see a clinician on a consistent basis, it becomes a part of your holistic care. But it it's interesting because, you know, when you look at an organization like the Patriots or any sports team, you have a complete investment in an individual because of how much they're being paid and how much they mean and all that. And to me, that's always kind of a best practice to look at how an organization like uh, the Patriots or whomever um, treats their workers. And granted, you know, Bamsey's not going to probably invest the same thing the Patriots are going to invest. But it's, in my view, it's it's the right approach, both from an individual and organization perspective, to want to focus on wellness. Yeah, I think if you don't, you've got to start early as well, haven't you? That, that you know, it's. Um, I listened. I had the privilege to listen to um, one of the mothers from the Sandy Hook Promise um, at a conference the other day, um, and other than being in tears, uh, talking about how she uh, lost her six-year-old, um, she talked about forgiveness and she talked about choose love. And the whole idea of choose love is to get into classrooms and and teach emotional wellness and kindness to kids. And it's amazing, this this uh, this project, because it becomes part of the curricula. And I think that sort of emotional health is, is, is the thing that drives our physical health eventually. And if we're learning good habits around forgiveness, if we're learning good habits about about being inclusive of people in the classroom, it might, might sound a bit hokey to, to, to people, but it actually, that the time in the classroom you know, from a rising five through a teenager is so formative in how people um, view the rest of the world. Um, and again, you know, regular uh, diagnostics of kids to see how they're going on, just how they're doing, just to see if early intervention really works from first episode psychosis, the outcomes of early intervention are fantastic for schizophrenia, right down to depression, anxiety. We know that generalized anxiety disorder is the biggest uh, diagnosed disorder in kids. Well, let's address that. Let's get in early. Preventative work is so cheap compared to acute care. And that, I think, is the, is the change that we need to make. And as long as people are brave enough to tell their stories and normalize it, and those you know, those folks in the, in the NFL and, and, and others have such a bully pulpit to do that. And I'm I'm, I'm just so in awe of them, but I'm also in awe of our staff, you know, who on a daily basis are dealing um, with all of these issues and just are so laser-like focused on getting people well and also, you know, being a part of people's recovery if you've been through episodes of mental illness and addiction. It's just, it, it is remarkable. I wanted to ask you a question about um, how things change in regards to using platforms. And, you know, it used to be that um, whether it was a, a team or a player, they'd be involved in very you know, popular off the field community relations type of things. If they made any sort of statement, they were very careful about what they supported. And, you know, over the last number of years, it feels like that's changed and that there is a, a willingness to talk about hard things and to talk about uh, things that or kind of outside of the comfort zone and may come with, um, you know, obviously the flag circumstance was, was one of those where McCordy twins and others decided to, um, to take a knee. And that brought about some anger and frustration from people for, for that. At what point in time in your view did players decide that they were going to, 
you know, take a stand or broadcasters or whomever that they, they that there was a time for choosing basically and we're just not going to sit and be you know, vanilla um and everybody's different but what point in time do you think the things change and people are willing to um, to take on these these topics, uh, obviously it happened in the '60s, in the late '60s, yeah. but it ha- it's happened again over the last couple of years. What do you think was the, the 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 catalyst in that? Yeah, Chris, that's a great question because you're right. Back in the '60s, of course, the the the, the famous uh, scene and photograph in Mexico City of the Olympians, Tommy Smith and uh, John Carlos, mm-hmm. I believe, at uh, the Olympic Games with their hands their raised their fists and the black gloves uh, at the Mexico City Olympics. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when he was well, Cinder at UCLA was an outspoken athlete on his college campus and others, of course, in those times. And during the last couple of decades, there were uh, star athletes who were outspoken, mostly in, in, in the case of, uh, you know, the ones that come to my mind, they were former star athletes. Guys like Michael Jordan, for example, uh, you know, they had brands to promote and protect. And there was the famous line about Jordan, not to make this political, but, you know, when asked about his reticence on certain issues, uh, in particular, it was in a, in a uh, race, a heated race for, I believe, the U.S. Senator, maybe governor in Charlotte, Harvey Gantt, who was the mayor of Charlotte, was running for, for higher office. And Jordan was asked about his reticence in, in lending support to get said, well, Republicans buy shoes, too. Yeah. And I think that was the thinking of a lot of athletes for a long time. Mm-hmm. There were some, again, who were less recognizable or were former athletes who really had less at stake with their current careers, their current uh, promotional standing uh, to put themselves out there and, and speak out on issues. But I think in, in, in recent years, and, and maybe it's just consistent with the division within our country and, and some of the things that we have seen, uh, you know, I think we've, we've been, uh, the water's been boiling. And in, in, in the last couple of years, we've reached a tipping point uh, where I think a lot of people who wouldn't have been inclined to do so in the past, uh, motivated by the nine minutes plus of the video of George Floyd's murder, in, in the Twin Cities and, and other incidents like it, uh, you know, and, and who decided I, I can't stay silent any longer. And there were athletes by that time, like you said, the McCordys among them who were already putting themselves out there. But I think their message was now being heard in the last year plus. And that made it easier, too, for others to come forward as well and support them. Uh, I, I think last year in particular, what, what was striking to me was the number of uh, players who you know weren't African American? Who might have been you know guys that stayed on the sidelines, literally and figuratively, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't voice their opinions on those issues. Who last year were more willing because, and I think that was that was consistent with you know society in general. You look at the marches uh, in in the spring and summer of 2020 that we saw around the country, and I do think that there is a correlation to to to, to our conversation tomorrow and as well it's and it's it's about listening and understanding mm-hmm. and open our minds opening our minds and our hearts to, to to the stories that other people are living they're telling us their experiences and our experiences may be different our experience there may be similarities within our experiences that, that can allow us to connect in some way and i think that's why it's been also so important for these athletes to talk given their platforms mm-hmm. these big strong you know you know guys full of testosterone and, and large muscles who are play play angry on sundays 
who yet at the same time say, hey, like, I, I've had to deal with these issues, these doubts, these, these problems in my life, depression, uh, issues with substance abuse, et cetera. You know, when, when they come forward, I think it makes a lot, it a lot easier for other people in, in communities to tell their stories because some of that stigma is removed for them because they heard or saw a Solomon Thomas, mm -hmm. a first round draft pick of the San Francisco 49ers, or they heard some of the Patriots players talking about their own experiences, trying to do the same. Uh, we, we know, you know, for, for so many of those Patriots players, there have been guys that in career, out of careers, have had to deal with the same issues and have spoken about it uh, rather candidly. Yeah, Jalen Brown from the Celtics has been a real leader yeah, on this absolutely. topic as well, and he's you know, talked about uh, men in general um, are not too willing to open up and talk about feelings and, and things of that nature. But he said particularly African-American men, because you have to, in his view, have that, you know, that tough feeling and that rough exterior because of everything that comes your way. And I thought that was big. I thought that was big for, for, for men and for African-Americans you know, to, to hear that. And we need to continue to, to push those words forward, Peter. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it is it's this cacophony in a way of noise of people rising up, and I'm, I'm glad that we drew a connection with what happened last year in terms of the in terms of the protests. and And I, I was struck by empathy, this sort of outpouring of empathy for people who didn't and haven't had those experiences that African Americans and people of color have had in this country. Yet, the um, the barricades, if you like, were were black. They were white. They were Asian. And then we had the Asian um, uh, abuse, and uh, you know, and it just seemed like there was a, a watershed moment. And I, I and I think it's same, the same with mental health as well. And maybe you know, Chris, you and I talked about this last year. Maybe we have all been brought a little closer to despair um, and isolation and loneliness over the last year in terms of what we've been through as a nation. And it reminds me a little bit of 9/11 when there was a moment, wasn't there, where we just came together and we thought, you know, we have to be strong and we have to, we have to manage the situation. We have to take care of each other. I think of the, the Boston uh, Marathon bombing and the Boston Strong um, idea and that idea of coming together. I think we're at a very special moment here uh, where we're recognizing that we need to do a better job of taking care of one another uh, as we go forward after this pandemic. You know, Peter, empathy is a, a key word, and I think how we treat others off, others is often reflected about our own feelings for ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I speak from firsthand experience when I say that. I, I'm someone who has sought the help of, uh, of uh, therapists in the past, uh, dealing with my insecurities and, and struggles in my career, for example, also reflective of, of things that I've I've dealt with in my personal life. And, and I know that there was a long period of time when I was trying to grind my way to reach this level of broadcasting at the NFL level or in Major League Baseball, where I was working in a lot of different places and dealing with a lot of issues like loneliness and, you know, questioning my decisions, questioning how long I could continue to do it, but also things from my background, my past, you know, understanding by by that time that, you know, my, my, my father probably could have used some therapy as well. Uh, you know, hot tempered Italian American, a hardworking, driven, you know, man's man who, who didn't talk out his problems, but rather lashed out. And there were, there were many embarrassing instances in my own life and career now that I look back on and regret. 
born out of my own frustration. How did I treat people in the booth when I wasn't happy that particular day? Because I felt like, you know, I, I shouldn't be broadcasting a game here in class A baseball any longer. I've paid my dues here. I need to move up the ladder and be in another place. It, it's my time. And, you know, and I think back to all, all those all those instances and how eventually through the help of therapy at the suggestion of my then fiance and, and now my wife who's a medical professional, I was able to come to grips with a lot of it and it made me a happier person. It, it removed a lot of, and, and a lot of those things, those instances, again, were born out of self-doubts and, and self-fears and, and uh, you know, my own insecurities and, and anxieties. And once I removed a lot of those issues from my life, although I, I continued to deal with them, I, I, once I started to, to, to face up to them and talk about them and understand them and where they came from, that made me, I think, a more consistently kind person. I, I always, I was raised very well and 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 imbued with a lot of the the values I, I try to espouse today. But you know, there, there are always those momentary lapses when you know what I I, I forgot those things that my parents taught me. I, I I wasn't such a nice guy, and I regret that so much today. And I think for people in general, how we treat one another, I think it's so contingent on how we view ourselves and and what's our mental state. And I think that's consistent when you talk about young people learning to be inclusive, learning to be kind, to be empathic. Uh, you know, those are things that I think not only lead to helping others feel happier and gain acceptance, but I think it helps those kids gain happiness themselves. And, and I'd like to see you know a society where more adults dealt with their own issues so that we could remove some of the things that divide us and, and some of the stereotypes and the racial and ethnic and religious uh, um, uh, differences that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that a lot of people see in, in the season, you know, because I think that they're, they're just not happy with who they are in the moment, or at least what they're dealing with at the time. Bob, that is so significant that you um, shared that. And Thank you. Yeah, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first off, I want to say how hard it is to get the job that Bob um, has and how, how hard you have to work to get there. I mean, I've mentioned it before. I get, it is easier to be an NFL player or a Major League Baseball player than it is to be to make it as, uh, easier to do that than as a broadcaster. There's only 32 NFL uh, announcers uh, in the league. Um, and, you know, it is extremely challenging in the work that you have to put in. I remember um, in college, Joe Castiglione, the Red Sox broadcaster, was really the only honest uh, person in, reg in regard to broadcasting. Where everybody else, you know, talked about the theoretical side of things and philosophical. And this is Joe talked about sales and he talked about how hard you had to work. He said, you just, if you want to make it in the big leagues, what you're going to have to do is you have to work in single A, you're going to have to sell tickets uh, and you have to scrub up the uh, picnic tables after you're done and then you have to go work your part-time job after that and that's just that you can do about twenty five thirty thousand dollars a year and that's how you start and that's how you make your way uh, through the the process and you know with that there obviously comes a lot of um, you know self-doubt as as Bob was describing there's anger there's frustration there's why is this person there and I'm not there's you know trying to it gets you. You end up playing a lot of games, um, you know, with yourself in your in your head to try to get through, um, you know, what's taking place and trying to, you know, to rationalize that. And I think that that's the same for a lot of jobs. And a lot of people are hearing these stories and thinking the same thing. I and mean, they may 
be at work in that position. They're like, why am I here? Why well, I should be somewhere else. And every everybody, in my view, though, has the you know the basic responsibility to try to be as kind as possible to um, to one another. And when you look at a lot of the things that ail our country, there is a lot of self-hate uh, that exists. There's a lot of fear. Uh, there's a fear that this person got this instead of me, and I'm not getting mine, and that person's standing in the way. They have an unfair advantage over me, and we all get kind of pitted against one another. We don't realize the commonality of circumstance that we all have as, as human beings. Um, and yeah, I think that it's it's really important that we talk through these things and have these conversations and and understand. And Peter, that's one of the the main challenges that that exists is that um, there is. A lot of times walls put up and we don't know why a person is acting a certain way. And we don't ask that why question a lot. We just take it at face face value and there's like or dislike because of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, 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 the place where probably it's most difficult is when you're driving a car, right? Because that's when, that's when the, <laughs> the worst of you comes out. And I, I'm, my hand's up. I'm terrible. But, I, but you, know, you, you know, Chris, you and I talk about the, unifer, the universal precautions of conversations. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, somebody once said to me, um, if you really, really get to know people, it's almost impossible to dislike them. Mm-hmm. And I had this reaction to it. I thought, well, what do you mean by that? And I thought, yes, if you know what that person has been through, if you know, because everybody has a story, right? And in that story um, are difficult times and things that shaped, I mean, Bob, you just spoke about some of the things that shaped you. And um, if you know that, you're going to make um, every effort you can not to offend or not to hurt somebody. And I think that idea of just being mindful of that and, and, and your best self is now people have bad days and they say things that they don't mean. And, you know, that's forgiven. But, you know, um, I went to see a child development um, uh, guy when my kids were little and, um, and, I, and somebody in the crowd, T. Barry Brazelton, this guy was, who's a genius. Someone in the crowd said, um, I'm, I'm really worried because I yelled at my kid the other day. And he said, just think about this as a bank. The love that you give to that kid, the, 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 the way that you invest your time in them offsets the odd you know, uh, lack of impatience that you have. The body of work is the work you have in working with other people and raising your children and, and nurturing your family and being kind to your friends. And exp- expanding that circle of kindness, I think, is the answer um, to a lot of the stuff that's wrong in our society today. I would agree totally. You know, and, and Chris, you, you mentioned Joe Castiglione. I, I wanted to go back to, to him in particular and people like him because in our profession, as you know, mentorship is instrumental in succeeding. Mm-hmm. First of all, being better at your craft. And you often, as a young broadcaster, seek out advice and critiques of your work from older broadcasters, people who are established, people who are where you want to be. And Joe Castiglione is among the the many, I'd say countless even, uh, major league announcers who at least le- le- uh, were able, willing to, to loan an ear for a few minutes to some of my work. And the conversations I had with those people often were instrumental in, in motivating me to continue to pursue my dreams as a broadcaster. And often at my lowest moments, personally, professionally, 
that's when I needed those conversations the most. Even if there were were, were, were criticisms that they 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 levied with you know a, a piece of work that they heard, nonetheless, when they offered encouragement and the fact that they were willing to take their time, you know, that meant everything in the moment to to keep going. You know, you can still do this. Mm-hmm. I would tell myself after I would talk to somebody like Joe. If I was at a stadium uh, with a press pass and I had a chance to go visit the broadcast booth and, and ran into some major league announcers and, or maybe had a chance to hang out in the back of their booths, just those conversations with those people in those moments, they were instrumental in helping me to get from there way back when to here today. And I think it's similar in, in, in other aspects of life, just people to talk to. It doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter what the subject is or, or whether it's about your career or just your personal life talking to people and, and having those experiencing and experiences and, and, and just, you know, walking away from a conversation and, and, and feeling a little bit differently about your, your perceived predicament mm-hmm. or plight, I think can make all the difference in the world. When we listen to some of the panelists who will be with us tomorrow night, uh, talk about their stories a few days ago. I was struck by the similarities for so many of them to people in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I could, I could, I could hear things that they were saying and immediately say, well, that's so-and-so that's aunt such and such right away. Oh, that's, you know, that's my own family has been dealing with. Uh, And I think it's really just an important part of, you know, our professional development as broadcasters to hear from these mentors. But I also know for myself, like personally too, it it had a huge impact on me as a personal and my own mental health in, in pursuing my professional goals. Yeah. We're all looking for commonality. And I think that it's it's challenging for, you know, for individuals that are in a kind of a subsect of um, a particular field to find that commonality amongst others. But there are aspects of our own lives which are easily relatable to other people who've been in uh, different and find themselves in uh, or find themselves in the same circumstances. And I think that's always important is to is to find individuals that you can have commonality with. But the fact of the matter is, as Peter was mentioning before, I can think of some of the people I like the least, but there are things that I like about them. So so like there's I don't want them to do that poorly. Like there's always you can always find that that aspect of things. And very often you'll find that some of the things that you don't like about another person, there's things that you don't like about yourself. And that it comes back to you in yeah. that realm uh, as well. We've hit our time for the podcast today. And as Bob mentioned, it is uh, our Mental Health Matters event tomorrow. It's at 6 p.m. We encourage folks to register at bamsey.info backslash Mental Health Matters. Again, that's bamsey.info backslash Mental Health Matters to be a part of the event virtually. And we'll also have it uh, live on our Facebook page. We'll be pushing it out a lot over the next few weeks. Bob, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, Thank you for sharing uh, your time and uh, your experiences uh, with us. And we look forward to tomorrow night. Well, thanks, guys, so much. And I may have said Juan Carlos earlier. It's John Carlos and Tommy Smith. (laughs) Just want to correct myself. And I believe Harvey Gamm might have been running for for governor of North Carolina, but uh, or maybe it was senator against Jesse Helms. Anyway, Michael Jordan's story. The line was Republicans buy shoes, too. Guys, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Truly appreciate it. Looking forward to tomorrow night. Thank you, Bob. Thank Thank you, you, Peter. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Bamsey's Humanity First podcast.